Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. The autonomous car, the driverless car in Tempe, Arizona, that ran over and killed a person. And we're going to talk about autonomous cars now, but I just want to read you a little bit of uh, an article that uh, was published in the Atlantic magazine. Self-driving cars still don't know how to see. And this is by Meredith Broussard. She's a university professor, and uh, this is her area of expertise. She wrote, on Sunday, the inevitable happened. An autonomous vehicle struck and killed someone. In Arizona, a woman policified, identified as Elaine Herzberg was crossing the street with her bicycle when a self-driving Uber SUV smashed into her. A little later in the article, they investigate or speculate a bit, and uh, this is what it's written. It's too soon to tell whether the Uber crash was a situation where the car was programmed to save the occupants and kill the bystander, or if it was a software malfunction, or if something totally unexpected happened. If the car was programmed to save the car's occupants at the expense of the pedestrian, the autonomous car industry is facing its first public moment of moral reckoning. And the fundamental uh, part of this article, it's really excellently written, is the cars don't see well, and uh, the professor writes, autonomous cars don't track the center line of the street well on ill-maintained roads, They can't operate on streets where the line markings are worn away, as on many of the streets in New York. These cars also don't operate in snow and other bad weather because they can't see in these conditions. The LiDAR guidance system doesn't work well in the rain or snow or dust because its beams bounce off the particles in the air instead of bouncing off obstacles like bicyclists. So if the car can't see the person, you get tempe. Now, I've also been reading, and maybe you have as well, that there's going to be a real spurt of these autonomous vehicles, these self-driving vehicles on our roads. And it's going to happen fairly quickly in this country. There are already 18-wheelers in the United States that are doing entire runs that are autonomous. Now, I suppose, you know, from the commercial perspective, that's pretty handy because You don't have to worry about a driver having to take a rest because there is no driver. Now, there are people who are truly enthusiastic about this and believe fervently that this is the future, and they may be right. Barry Kirk is the co-founder and the executive director of the Canadian Automated Vehicle Center of Excellence. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Barry, thank you very much for taking the time. And what do you say to what I just read from that Atlantic magazine piece? Well, um, thank you, Roy, for having me. Uh, let's look at the big picture, Roy. Um, a while back, we did a joint report with the Conference Board of Canada. We predicted that when we have full deployment of autonomous vehicles, we will be able to eliminate 80, 80, 80% of the collisions and deaths and injuries. And in the Canadian context, that means we have almost 2,000 traffic deaths a year. If we can save 1,600 lives, that is wonderful. But there will still be about 400 people a year who get killed, um, and that's an average of about one a day. And the problem we have is that people expect the technology to be perfect. And it's not. I'm an engineer, Roy. I know all hardware, all software fails occasionally. And the AV technology will be much safer than human-driven cars, but not perfect. And so in that sense, I'm not surprised by um, what happened in temper. um, And there will be other collisions in the future. If we slow down the introduction of self-driving cars, then we will slow down the 
saving of all those lives. Now, uh, Barry, I have to say this to you. As I read that particular article, I read, I read a lot of things about the, 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 the autonomous vehicles because I find it fascinating. I don't want one because I, I want to drive myself, but I, under, I understand the, the future's changing or the future's coming today. The future's changing, in, in fact, because our projections for the future are changing. But what I read, the, the, the concerns that, that are in this Atlantic Magazine article suggest that the problems with the or the or the limitations that the autonomous vehicles have would probably my guess may well result in more deaths than the 2000 that we have now in Canada those are very serious concerns if the car can't tell where it's going uh, if there if unless what's what, what's the story in Tempe is the car programmed to preserve the life of its occupants at the expense of somebody else on the street I don't know that that's that's questioned in this particular article. Those are very serious concerns. If the car can't see where it's going, if it can't drive on a road where there are no lines, if it has trouble in the snow, boy, that's going to be a problem in Canada. Um, I disagree with what that article said. First of all, you know, prototypes of self-driving vehicles have driven literally tens of millions of kilometers, mm -hmm. um, and they, they can see. Can they see perfectly? No. Um, but they can see where they're going, and the technology is getting better um, you know, month by month, uh, year by year. In terms of seeing... But there the isn't going to be, you know, Barry, there isn't going to be a wait period. There isn't going to be a time where we say, well, for now, this is not buying like buying a, a, a laptop where they're going to update it. This is a vehicle that's going to go on the road, it's going to interact with traffic, and it's going to be exposed to, 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 to kids, and it's going to be exposed to... Uh, to people coming out of you know supermarkets, it's going to be it's going to be exposed to everyday life. It has to be able to function in that everyday life scenario without becoming a problem. Oh, absolutely, um, I agree with you. And that um, the, the development, the testing is happening you know, in Europe, especially and in the states. The first generation of you know fully self-driving vehicles is already in commercial operation. Mm -hmm. In some places in Europe, you can get onto a low-speed electric shuttle bus that has no driver. Um, that rides, um, you know, drives itself on public roads. The first generation is here now, and it's working very, very well, but it never will be perfect. Uh, one of the interesting um, facts, which isn't really mentioned much, is in the seven days before that one woman was killed in Tempa, um, in the Phoenix area, there were 10 pedestrians who were killed um, by um, vehicles driven by humans. How many automated vehicles are running in Tempe, Arizona right now? Do we know? Um, I personally don't know, no. So the guess would be there are many, many thousands of vehicles that are driven by humans. Or, uh, or probably uh, so that, hundreds of thousands. Yeah, yeah, so that 10 people being killed by vehicles driven by humans versus one being driven by a, an autonomous vehicle. That may be the only autonomous vehicle running in, uh, in Tempe, Arizona. We don't know. No, there's uh, a few more than one. But, okay. I mean, but that statistic becomes a little more suspect. Let me read this to you as well, get your thoughts on it. Sure. This, again, is from the Atlantic Magazine article. Um, let's say there's a huge red fire truck idling at the side of the road. An autonomous car can't see the fire truck if the fire truck suddenly pulls out into traffic. Why? Autonomous cars have a stop and start problem. They don't have unlimited processing power, so they cut down on calculations by only calculating the potential future location of objects that seem to be in motion because they're not calculating the trajectory for the stationary fire truck only for objects in motion like pedestrians or bicycles, they can't react quickly to register a previously stationary object as an object in motion. If a giant red fire truck is parked and it suddenly swings into traffic, the autonomous car cannot react in time. Though it's running its calculations in microseconds, it still calculates everything equally. So far, it isn't able to recognize a fire truck as a class of objects that might move unexpectedly. A human, by contrast, gets a jolt of adrenaline in a crisis situation that allows the brain to react lightning fast and the brain sees a fire truck and it registers that the fire truck might move in the future so the brain is ready to act. Well, first of all, you know, any vehicle that's parked... Um on the road, anywhere, has, is seen by an autonomous vehicle. I mean, if you're on, a, say, a, a standard four-lane highway and there's a vehicle parked by the shoulder, um, 
you know, autonomous vehicle sees it and can avoid it, can move over. But it, but does, but does it look at a, does it see a fire truck and recognize the fact that because it's an emergency vehicle, it may move unexpectedly and it may move very quickly. The human sees the fire truck and the human recognizes that fact. The article makes the case that the autonomous vehicle can't make the can't dis, uh, make a distinction between a four door sedan that's on the side of the road and a fire truck. Well, First of all, it, it, you know, this applies to any vehicle that's parked on a road, not a fire truck, even, as you say, a sedan. Um, the, the artificial intelligence um, is being programmed to predict what will happen. One of the other scenarios along the same lines, is, which is very real, is if you're on a suburban street and some kids are playing soccer and the ball rolls into the road, um, a human knows that one of the kids may run after the, the soccer ball. And the programming is being designed to predict what humans might do, um, as well as what um, vehicles might do. So that is being built in. And yes, you know, AVs can see and uh, are being programmed to predict likely motion. All right. So at the moment, then, there is a limitation. Uh, Is that correct? Um, Yeah, there is. But, you know, but it's being always, addressed? The, the technology will never be perfect. And that's one of the, the messages here. Uh, but let's put, put it into perspective. I have about 30 seconds, Barry. Go ahead. General Motors has announced that they will um, start mass producing self-driving cars in 2019. Um, and it wouldn't be doing that unless um, it felt confident that they would be safe. So uh, one more question. Why do we need them? Um, two reasons. One is um, it'll be cheaper for people to be mobile, and second, it will improve mo- mobility for all of us, um, including seniors, handicapped people, and indeed um, millennials who are not getting driving licenses the same way that you, uh, they did in your generation and mine. Mm. Why is it cheaper? Sorry? Why is it cheaper? Oh, because people will not be buying cars as much. They'll be buying rides using driverless taxis. And the study we did with the conference board predicted that an average Canadian family that gets rid of one of its cars and uses driverless taxis will save $3,000 a year. A car is a huge waste of money. So next year, General Motors is going to be putting a fleet of these cars on the road. Yes, as driverless taxis. All right, uh, Barry, thank you very much for the time. It's uh, it's interesting. Many questions being asked, and they need ha- and need answers. Thank you again. Um, you're very welcome, Lloyd. All the best. Barry Kirk, co-founder, executive director of the Canadian Automated Vehicle Centre of Excellence. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Lieutenant Colonel Arnaud Beltram, very special man. He uh, had quite a history in the police force in uh, in France. He uh, joined the force in the early 2000s, became a member of the Special Police Forces in 2003. That's a Special Forces unit that's made up police officers, and uh, was in Iraq in 2005. He's also a former member of the Presidential Guard, and he earned the Order of Merit, which is one of the most prestigious honors, orders in uh, honors in France. He earned that in 2012. And I just get kind of emotional about thinking what this man did when he sacrificed his own life for someone he didn't know. And what's interesting as well is just a few months ago, Lieutenant Colonel Beltram put together a training program it was a counterterrorism program, and it was all about exactly the kind of hostage situation that took place. They even used a supermarket. And so there he was on Friday our time, and early morning Friday our time, and gave himself up to this 25-year-old terrorist who the L.A. Times calls a gunman. And uh, he was killed. I don't know what kind of psychological makeup allows someone to be so ultimately totally generous. Honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm not a very emotional person, but I'm very emotional about this. This is a 
very special human being. Very special human being, and and and, you know, we live in a in a in a time when people talk about the bystander effect. Something's going on that's critical. Something's going on that is alarming. Someone's being hurt. Someone's being assaulted, and people stand and watch. They don't do anything. They just stand and watch. The bystander effect. Not with Lieutenant Colonel Arnaud Beltram. Joining me is Dr. Frank Farley. He's the former president of the American Psychological Association, also former president of the Society for the Study of Peace, Conflict, and Violence. Frank, thank you so much for the time. Let me just ask you, I guess the most fundamental question always begins with why. Why did he do what he did? Well, Roy, uh, heroism and giving one's life for someone else is the probably the least understood human quality that we know of. And particularly when you're giving up your life for someone who you don't even know. They're not related to you, etc. It is a profound mystery. And <clears throat> we don't get a lot of examples of it. You mentioned the bystander effect. And, uh, you know, the usual M.O. is for folks to stand around. And particularly in the era when we've got, everyone's got a cell phone and they can dial 911 and let the professionals come in and take, and take charge. And so it's, it's a very rare event. Uh, and so we understand very little. I've been studying heroism for a very long time. I do, I, I sort of have come to somewhat of a, of a picture of uh, extreme heroism, the ultimate sacrifice of this type, uh, where I see at, at least a couple of important ingredients in the recipe. One is uh, risk tolerance. That is, if you are deeply risk-averse, you're unlikely to do anything like this. And in fact, you're unlikely to be in the gendarmerie anyway, to be a police officer, if you're deeply risk-averse, because it's a risky profession. In fact, I believe it tends to attract risk-takers. So that's one quality. You, 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 you have a high tolerance for risk. In fact, you might thrive on risk. Um, it's what I call the type T personality, capital letter T. And your listeners can look it up. There's a whole lot of stuff online under type T personality. But that's the risk-taking, excitement-seeking, thrill-seeking personality. Okay, so that's, in my view, one ingredient in the recipe. I think the other key ingredient is uh, what I call the G factor, generosity. Uh, giving, generous, altruistic. Um, and you can give in various ways. You can be a giving person for your loved ones or for friends. Or as his mother, Lieutenant Colonel Beltrame's mother said, you know, she understood fully what he had done because he was always doing everything in his life directed toward his country, basically. And so he was giving to his country. And so he, I would guess, has that kind of generosity, altruism, uh, giving personality wrapped in with a high risk tolerance or even uh, risk seeking you know the the thrill of the of the chase the thrill of the risk itself so those two ingredients in my view are key um and he wouldn't have done it in my view if he was highly risk averse he just sort of couldn't get beyond his personality so to speak but that's why i have a hunch he had this he may have had this type t uh personality uh, along with a strong streak of generosity of doing the right thing, of doing the right thing for society, for your country, etc. You know so what it reminded like, me, Frank? It reminded me uh, in a way, uh, or actually reminded me quite strongly, of the first responders on 9-11 when they ran into the towers. Everyone else was running out, and you completely understand people wanting to get out and get away as 
far away as they possibly could, as quickly as they possibly could. But here were these these um, first responders, and they were running into the buildings, and many of them Amazing. lost their lives. I mean, that is astounding. You know, they could, they're employed as first responders, let's say, and they could easily say, you can take this job and shove it. I'm not going in that building. Yeah. You know, that building's coming down. People are jumping yeah, I've got family it. at home. You know, you have, you have, you have uh, loved ones at home. You don't want to uh, risk in, in that situation. Who, know, who knew what was going to happen? Who knew those towers were going to collapse? But we knew it was terrible, and yet here were these firefighters and police officers going full speed into the middle of it. Well, it sort of reinforces, I think, what I'm saying here. Yeah, maybe it does. You know, the risk uh, tolerance and, in some cases, risk-seeking because it's it's exciting, it's thrilling, it's fun. Um, But here's this guy, here's this man... And this this police officer, and he knows this woman. The woman is probably going to get killed. And now he makes the decision that I'm going to give my life to save her. So my next question, Frank, is how will this police officer's death affect the woman whose life he saved? Oh, I don't know. I I think it uh, psychologically. Yes, it's so hard to know. I mean, I I would just be sort of wildly speculating as to what how what the outcomes would be. But clearly, uh, you know, she will be grateful. I'm sure for the rest of her days, mm-hmm. and and in awe of it, as we all are. I mean, it's just near impossible to understand. Yeah, because I've heard that in situations where someone is the recipient of tremendous generosity and something untoward happens to the person or the persons who are extending the generosity, the person who received the generous action lives with guilt for a long period of time. Yes, and that's understandable. It is, actually, yeah. You know, sure, someone else gives their life for you. You know, life, it's all we've got. What a situation, huh? Indeed. No, I've seen very few examples like that. The one curiosity, though, was uh, his brother, Cedric. Mm -hmm. And Cedric said, his quote is saying, he certainly knew he didn't stand a chance. That's very odd. I mean, that suggests that was he rushing in there to die? Did he not have some hope? that he could resolve this standoff, this hostage crisis? That was a question I had. I would have thought that he might have felt at his core that I may be able to do what the other hostage can't do based on my training and my experience. I may be able to defuse this situation. Yes. But clearly that didn't happen. There's so many no. questions and so few answers, and we, li- we live in such a cynical time that a, t- that an, uh, a situation like this, an action like this, Frank reminds us deeply of the of the need and the appreciation for just good good people. Yes, absolutely right. You're listening to the Roy Green Show, heard weekends from two to five on 900 CHML. Back with Dr. Frank Farley on the Roy Green Show, former president of the American Psychological Association. So, Frank, let's go from the selfless bravery of the French police officer to the students at the Parkland, Florida High School, who witnessed the horrific massacre. And now they're going to have to live with this for the rest of their lives. The, there's a tremendous amount of uh, interest in them, and there's a lot of focus, and they, they can direct their energies toward the focus that's on them now. But when that starts to wane, and as they grow older and go through life, how is this experience most likely to affect them? Is there any way to know? There's not many ways to know. Um, one potential uh, consequence would be post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, which is a very famous disorder. Uh, it's primarily a, a memorial disorder. It's a, di- a disorder of time and, and memory. And um, sometimes people can suffer from PTSD, and it, w- it will not show itself for a month, a year. There's, a, there's some cases of decades before the PTSD shows itself. So these kids in uh, Douglas High School 
Um, some may show PTSD uh, very quickly, anxiety, depression, uh, sleep uh, problems, flashbacks to the day of the shooting in the school, February 14. Um, others may not show it now, but they may show it in the in the future. And so let me ask you this as well. Very hard to predict. Let me ask you this as well. There are, of course, millions of students in uh, globally, millions of students who are aware of that horrific shooting. There have been other school shootings in the United States. There have been school shootings in other parts of the world, including Canada. Now, it, whether or not you're actually a, a student at the school, perhaps these shootings will affect, and I'm sure it will affect many students who are hundreds and maybe thousands of miles distant from the Florida school but nevertheless, they're affected by it. What should be done for them if parents notice something that you know their kids are depressed about and they don't want to talk about it, or it, it just is difficult for them? What are the parents? What would you What would you recommend be done for these students? Well, I think uh, where parents and and high school students today and students basically of all grades uh, who you know have any access to the media and know anything about this. Uh, it's very important to point out that it's extremely unlikely to happen, uh, you know, at your school where you live, uh, that there are all sorts of people uh, aroused by this heinous event who are working towards safety for all students. There is a national movement that's created by high school students, which is simply astounding, and that is going to mitigate a lot, in my judgment, a lot of the anxiety and stress that may emerge uh, in, the, in the weeks and years ahead, which is that these, this, the high school students of, at this time have formed a whole movement toward influencing politics. We really haven't seen anything, maybe the 1960s to some extent, uh, but it's rare to see anything of this magnitude where they want to influence politics. And they're thinking it through. They're being highly literate. They're being very smart. And I think that gives them a cause mm -hmm. that will sort of uh, inoculate against many possible PTSDs or psychological okay. consequences of the event. Frank, I remember as well, we only have a few seconds, but I remember as well after the Columbine shooting, I was talking to somebody about that, a medical person, uh, a day or so after, and that person said, if your child wants to talk about it or you feel your child wants to talk about it, make yourself available. Yes. Make yourself available. Nothing's more important than that. Dr. Farley, it's always great speaking with you. Thank you for taking the time. You're welcome. Take care. Frank, Dr. Frank Farley, past president of the American Psychological You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. So 50 million, 50 million Facebook users had their data um, misused, abused, if you will. And there's also a story that um, the, the app that was used also gathered tons of information on those people's friends and associates. And that included people who never, ever gave any permission for consent. Didn't even have the app. But I'm just thinking that Mark Zuckerberg's not a happy guy. Uh, he's cost him about $5, million, uh, $5 billion of his own money. Nobody should have $5 billion. That's just insane. That's $5,000 million. Anyway, he, that's what he's lost. And uh, in the U.K., Theresa May has said that uh, Cambridge Analytica and Facebook are expected to fully comply with an investigation that's taking place and that people need to have confidence in how their personal data is used. I have to tell you, I don't think too many people give too much thought about their personal data. I went out and bought something today before I came into the radio station. And what they do, and there was a, quite a lineup at the cash registers, and what they were doing, each cashier was asking each person who is buying something, what's your postal code? And everybody immediately and willfully gave the postal code. Just as they often, I see people give their phone numbers. What's your phone number? I always say no. I'm not giving you my phone number. I'm not giving you my postal code. I'm not giving you my license number. I'm not giving you anything. 
I came to buy something, not to answer your questions about me. But there's so much data about individuals out there, and it's floating around, and God knows what's happening to it. So let's talk about this issue of uh, Cambridge Analytica with David Fraser, Internet Technology and Privacy Lawyer, partner at McKinnis Cooper in Halifax. He's also the author of the Canadian Privacy Law Blog. I think but we, we first talked, David, before the Internet was around. <laughs> it's a different world we're living in, isn't it? It sure is. If I'd said to you, David, Facebook, um, Cambridge Analytica, f- personal data on 50 million people, you would have thought that I had a few issues. Uh, so let me ask, start with this. How many people's, any idea how many people's personal data is circulating in cyberspace at any given moment? Oh, probably personal data of most people who use the Internet, which is more than... Uh, I think two-thirds of the world population. So billions. So it's, it's a massive amount of information, and it's not just kind of the number of people that it's about. I think it's also the, the detail that is included in all of that information. Websites you visit, places you are, your, your cell phone is constantly telling the, the network where your phone is uh, in order for the phone to work, but also that information can be used for other purposes. So I often think of it in terms of digital exhaust. We're just kind of polluting and leaving a, a significant stream of information behind with everything that we do. And we don't seem to care very much. Well, uh, I think some people care more than others. I don't think that there's any, any doubt about that. And I certainly hear from a lot of people that say, well, privacy is dead, just because, you know, think of hundreds of millions, if not billions of people sharing a huge amount of information on Facebook and Instagram and, and things like that. I think people are still concerned about privacy and still make decisions about their privacy. But it's harder to participate in modern society without engaging through these digital uh, media. And yeah. that involves sharing some of your information, leaving traces that, uh, that before wouldn't have. If you picked up your landline telephone 25 years ago, your phone company would have known something about, uh, about who you were calling, but they probably wouldn't have used it for anything other than billing purposes. And now that sort of information has economic value because they're going to use it to push ads to you, for example. Yeah. And, uh, and it's just, it, it's become information dense out there. So, you know, when I said, no, I'm not giving you my postal code, then immediately I paid for the item with my debit card. Yep. So while I didn't give them a postal code, when I paid with my debit card, I was giving the bank all sorts of information. Yeah, absolutely. And had you, had you paid for cash, you might have left uh, less of a footprint or an informational footprint behind. But you were probably captured on about 15 cameras as you walked through the store, uh, filling, your, filling your shopping cart. And so it's... Uh, it's harder and harder to, to live a modern life without leaving these, uh, these sorts of footprints. And I think if there's anything beneficial that's going to come out of this Facebook Cambridge Analytica story, it's going to be two things. One is that perhaps a higher awareness and a greater level of cynicism on the part of individuals about what information they're leaving behind. And second is probably perhaps even more important is the scrutinizing how this information can be misused for political manipulation purposes, mm-hmm. which I think... You know, it's one thing to uh, have your information used to show you ads for golf clubs when Facebook thinks you might be interested in golf clubs. It's a second to have that information used to undermine our democratic institutions. Yeah. So when we talk about Cambridge Analytica and we talk about what has happened and bring Facebook into the picture and then slide in the Donald Trump campaign for president in 2016, what are the most significant factors of all of this to you as the professional Privacy, internet privacy expert. What uh, the lawyer? What 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 really uh, uh, connected with you? Well, I, I think that they connected on a whole number of levels, and and frankly, as a as a Canadian standing in Canada, what concerns me the most is that this stuff is probably happening in Canada, and because our political parties are completely unregulated when it comes to privacy and how they manage personal information. It really can continue to exist in the in the shadows. If they were subject to our privacy laws, we could at least require them to have privacy policies and legally hold them to those privacy policies. We could, it would be based on consent. They could only use our information if we consented to it, for example. But because of that, they're completely in the in the shadows. Now they've taken advantage of so Cambridge Analytica has at least what's alleged of being kind of out of sight in a lot of instances. But they're subject to. Uh, the jurisdiction of, let's say, the, the Information Commissioner of the United Kingdom, who's actually a Canadian, Elizabeth Denham, who's thoroughly investigating what's, what happened in connection with, with Brexit, so not just Facebook, not just Cambridge Analytica, but uh, uh, Canadian companies involved in that and, and others as well. And I think we need to know and, and should understand kind of what, is, 
what are political parties and their supporters doing in Canada. Uh, and there's other layers to it as well. There's, of course, the, the use of kind of Russian bots and trolls in order to simply polarize the population. But, uh, but the, the potential for mischief that cuts to the core of our democratic institutions is the thing that, that really struck me the most. Mm-hmm. And there is the Canadian angle with Ray Larson. And uh, uh, Wiley, Wiley. Uh, one of the uh, one of the founders, Wiley, yeah. of, uh, or said to be one of the founders or one of the developers of Cambridge Analytica. It's also said that he had a contract with the Liberal uh, Liberal Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it could have been for something completely unrelated. Data scientists do a whole bunch of things, um, but it certainly raises enough flags to suggest that somebody should be looking into what's going on in Canada. And I'm afraid that that there's <laughs> so many vested interests in the political status quo on both sides of the aisle, that we're really, we're not going to see that. And, uh, and unfortunately, uh, as we're looking down the barrel of an Ontario election, for example, we're looking down the barrel of a federal election in the next couple of years, kind of the time, the clock is ticking. Is this issue, this, this experience with Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, is it going to change, do you think, because you just mentioned the upcoming Ontario election, June 7, and then September of, uh, of next year is the federal election, right? September, October, one or the other. Yeah. September, isn't it? Anyway, uh, whichever one it is, September or October, the uh, is what's happened over the last few weeks, or at least what we've become aware of over the last few weeks, is is this is there time to put a to put the really put the brakes to this, or is the cat already out of the bar out of the bag? Well, I, I think that uh, that perhaps the simply be, with the passage of time, the, the the issue is becoming more and more acute, but. Frankly, if, if you were to give me a couple of days, I could write legislation that could roll our political parties into into the privacy law, and they could pass it as, uh, more quickly than they passed the marijuana legislation, theoretically. Um, but certainly, I, I think we actually need to take a very close look at it, and we're, we're against the clock, mm-hmm. not just in terms of how political parties collect, use, and disclose information, but also kind of non-political parties that have been involved in advocacy activities in order to polarize opinion and, and press things. Frankly, if I was Facebook, probably what I would be doing right now is I'd be saying, okay, look, until we've gotten to the bottom of this, we're not going to do, we're not going to allow any political or issue-based advertising on our platform until we understand what's going on. And I think one thing that, that I think is also mm-hmm. worth mentioning is that it really does seem like Facebook was duped. Facebook, uh, the, the Cambridge Analytica application that ran on its platform that collected a huge amount of information presented to people, and I believe presented to Facebook, that it was for research purposes, kind of academic research, which it obviously was not. And they were obliged to not retain any of the information, and it really sounds, or at least the reporting is saying, that that they held on to it. And so I think what we're going to be seeing on the Facebook side of the fence is much greater pressure, I think, to police everybody who uses their platform, because it's not just a website. It's also a platform that game developers, for example, run on. And other uh, and other developers do too. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll uh, certainly have to keep a very close eye on this uh, because with the two elections coming up, and they're very very significant to this country going forward. You're listening to the Roy Green Show, heard weekends from two to five on 900 CHML. David Fraser, Internet Technology and Privacy Lawyer, partner of McKinnis Cooper Halifax, and author of the Canadian Privacy Blog, which I enjoy reading. And I saw that you were uh, addressing the lawyers of Canada on the issue of the um, the CBSA, Canada Border Services Agency, and their view is that they have the right to um, to uh, inspect or search all digital information which crosses the border. And you're saying not so fast. What's the story? So the the CBSA operates under the Customs Act, which is their legislation that gives them authority. And the last time it was significantly revised was more than 20 years ago. And so all of their authority to do anything is based on that piece of legislation, which allows them to search any goods uh, that cross the border or that are in a customs-controlled zone. And so they've taken the view that anything, a digital device, and most importantly, the data on it is a good and is something that they can, uh, they can search without a warrant, without any even suspicion. So you can have a, a CBSA officer who just saw a flight coming back from Cuba and uh, pulled over every uh, attractive young woman looking at her beach photos. And that would be, according to the CBSA, perhaps inappropriate but completely lawful. 
And the problem is that in the meantime, the Supreme Court of Canada has said, hey, wait a minute, uh, computers and smartphones are different than anything else we've ever seen. They have a much higher privacy interest because of the vast amount of information that's on them, the fact that they're often collecting information that we're not even aware of, and the fact that even if we make the move to delete stuff, often it's not fully deleted. So let's say the, the police get a warrant to search your home or your office, and they can go rummaging through all your filing cabinets, they can go rummaging through everything, but if they find a computer, they have to seize the computer and go back and get a second warrant. So the first warrant does not allow them to turn on the computer. And, but the CBSA haven't caught up to that modern reality where the courts are saying, hey, hey, even in cases where you have a diminished expectation of privacy, for example, the moment you're arrested and they take your smartphone, they can't just go rummaging through that. And CBSA hasn't, hasn't kept up, and they've, they really seem to have made a concerted effort to make sure that the question never gets in front of a judge. So a couple of years ago, they charged a guy who was coming through Halifax, uh, a Quebec resident, um, and they r told him to unlock his phone, and he refused. And so they charged him with obstruction. And he was about to go to trial, and they gave him a, a sweetheart, uh, a, a pretty sweet deal that he couldn't, couldn't refuse, which seemed to be simply so that the judge would not say, hey, you cannot do that. This is, this is inappropriate. And I was involved in a case in southern Ontario this past summer where I represented the Canadian Civil Liberties Association with a very similar thing, where uh, just before the decision or the question was going to go, go to the judge, the Crown made a, a, an offer that uh, the individual could not refuse. So they benefit from the uncertainty, and they, I don't know if you've ever seen that, uh, I think it's on Discovery, the, the show Border Security, they search people's phones all the time. That's one of their, their number one ways of, of doing, you know, some of it is quite legitimate. Somebody says they're visiting Canada as a tourist, and you, they go looking through their phone, and they discover the person actually has a job offer. Or you have a Canadian returning to Canada, says they paid 50 bucks for that watch, and they go rummaging through the phone, open up their banking app, and discover that they paid 500 bucks for it. So certainly there can be a legitimate law enforcement purpose for that, but the issue is that they can't do it without any, any suspicion, and I think they should actually be getting a warrant. And that really is an environment where you feel almost compelled to do whatever they tell you to do. Well, that's right. That's right. You just Most people are, are just getting off a long international flight. They're tired. They're probably already vulnerable. They might have a connecting flight that they're trying to, trying to get. So, you know, anytime anybody in a uniform tells you to do something, even if they say please, it, it's compulsive. It, it feels compulsory. And, uh, and so I totally get that most people... Even if, even if they needed a, a warrant to require it, if somebody were just asked for that information, they're going to provide it simply because they want, to, they want to get out of there. But they're opening up access to just a massive amount of information. On my phone is, is every photograph I've taken since 2001, uh, is all the, all the emails and messages back and forth with family members and, and things like that. So it's, it, it would be akin to 25 years ago, crossing the border with all of your personal papers, your filing cabinets, your diaries, and things like that, and, and photo albums. And so, obviously, there's a much higher, there should be a much higher privacy expectation in that device, and they shouldn't just be able to go trolling through it just because they want to. So, if you find yourself in that situation, you're coming back into Canada, and uh, the Canadian Border Security Agency person says, um, do, you have your, do you have a smartphone? Yes, I do. Well, let me see it. Do you say at that point, no, I will not let you see it, is, or how should you proceed? Well, it, it's a very tricky situation for anybody who's not a lawyer. Kind of, as a lawyer, my phone has privileged material on it. And so, for, for one thing, I would turn it off completely before going through customs. And I know my device is encrypted. And I would say, look, I'm a lawyer. This contains privileged material. I am not going to give you access to it unless I'm ordered to by a judge. And as a, a non-lawyer, I think you, you might be in a position to do that, but you really would expect to be charged. Mm -hmm. and, and then it becomes a matter of, of do you, look, who wants to go through that process and yeah. then get it in front of a judge and have the judge tell the CBSA what's what. And so it's an expensive process. So I, I don't want to go on the radio nationally telling everybody uh, to say no, simply because they, they would anticipate that they would be charged for it. But uh, Ultimately, this question will go in front of a judge. It will probably be appealed up to the appeal courts in the Supreme Court of Canada, and we'll have some certainty. But at least my read on the law, as it's been stated by uh, the Supreme Court of Canada, but ignored by CBSA, is you know they can't do that unless they have a 
a real compelling reason to do that, and I think that that would require a warrant. Well, as you, we started out uh, with, the, with our conversation, David, the times sure have changed. That's right. You know, the safest thing is don't bring it with you. No. <laughs> if you don't want to hand <laughs> okay. it over, don't keep, don't have it in your suitcase, okay. don't have it on your phone. Uh, wipe your phone before you leave, and uh, and only use kind of cloud services, and then wipe it as you go through the uh, go through the border. And that way, you know, if there's nothing there for them to look at, there's nothing okay. you really have to worry about. Thanks so much for your time. Always great speaking with you. Anytime, Roy. You take care. Take care, David Fraser, Internet Technology Privacy Lawyer Partner at McKinnis Cooper, in Halifax, and author of the Canadian Privacy Law Blog. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Chronic pain patients who uh, do away with their opioids when, if their situation improves, they don't go through withdrawal. Not all of them. Very few. Like less than, I think less than 10%. And uh, Kate Nicholson talked about that. She was on the opioids for 20 years and then was off them and she never had a moment of withdrawal. Here's Carrie. She joins me from the United States. I'm sorry I talked so long, but things that have to be said. How are you, Carrie? I'm hanging in there. Tell us what happened to you at the doctor's office this week. Um, it was about 10 days ago, but it was actually part two in the story. So would you like me to Yeah, just tell your story. Recent Tell your story. Recent or the Just beginning? The go beginning? to the beginning. Go to the beginning. Okay. Um, the specialist who um, has treated my pain for over 15 years consecutively um, has refused to do so any longer. And um, this began initially 11 months ago. He told me he would no longer prescribe narcotics for me. He said his license was at risk. And um, I was numb. And I, I said I would sign a contract, whatever he asked. And he turned around. He wasn't even looking me in the eye when he told me he was cutting me off. And he told me there was nothing he or we could do, that the documentations now required were quote-unquote too burdensome for him, and he simply would not risk his license, the loss of his license. So I contacted the head of the patient advocacy department at the hospital where his practice is located currently, and this lady, who was present at my request at our next appointment, the doctors and mine, um, we had a discussion. We had a conversation. And um, I received a letter two days later from her, the patient advocate uh, representative, stating that he would continue prescribing until December which was seven months, seven additional months, and I was given the ultimatum of finding another doctor to manage my pain, and my doctor even refused to provide any referral for me, which I asked him for, and he asked the patient advocate to make any recommendations. Uh, she gave me two names in this letter, and um, one doctor who doesn't prescribe pain medications but is the interventional type of pain management doctor, which means injections, all sorts of alternative, any and all alternatives, all of which I've tried numerous times and have not been effective. Um, and then the other name was a doctor who has a concierge service and accepts no insurance. So any treatment which was not guaranteed she would even continue, the treatment I was having, any treatment would be 100% paid for out of pocket by me with an additional sort of convenience charge for the concierge service. And I 
I passed on both of those options because neither of them were were a real option for me, a solution for me. Um, Finally, this letter said that, um, and it was really a series of ultimatums. Um, Finally, this letter said he had agreed if I could not find, identify another doctor by December, he would agree not to discontinue entirely prescribing my pain medications until April at the very latest. Well, that's about two weeks away. I last saw him 10 days ago, and that's when he told me, you know, this is it. So so I had my first ultimate, my first denial, refusal, um, 11 months ago, and then now I've had the formal official, I won't do this anymore. So, What is your condition? What are you living with? I have several different conditions. I mean, I can tell you what started it all, and then... Uh, well, let's do this. Tell, tell, was, tell, me, tell me, please, what is the... What is what is your life going to be like without well, the pain medication? What happens to you? Um, I will exist in a state of constant, unremitting pain, and I will have the constant thought of no relief which i i had i had relief i was ne- i have never been pain free in 20 years but i did know that i had the possibility the potential for some re- sufficient relief that i could do things that people take for granted like taking a shower brushing my teeth uh, going grocery shopping, fixing dinner, doing laundry. I will no longer be able to do any of these things. I have to take a break. We're going to come back with you. The opioids, okay. the opioids allowed you to do those things. That's right? the only thing. Took the edge off the pain, but never took it away. Yeah, and this is a story we've heard time and again. The opioid medication did not do away with the pain. The pain remained... But quality of life was sufficient that life could continue with some level of acceptability. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. So when you don't have this medication, your life, in one word, will be hell. Yes. What have you tried? What? what I mean, what are they telling I... They're offering, they're suggesting things you've already tried and you know they're not going to work. Yes, I, I mean, I can, I can tell you a few. I, I have a list of over 30 alternative No, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that, Carrie. No, 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 I won't. I'm just, what I'm telling you is I have a list of that and I can name a few for you if you'd like me to. But I, I have, what they call it here is... Um, fail step therapy and you fail through the steps and I I failed through every step every alternative treatment before they ever offered me opioids 20 years ago and throughout this time I have I, I have used them and still use some of them but no one of them could ever have the efficacy of the opioids it's just not, and that's known. That's that's shown in data. Here's so. the part that I always am so reluctant to raise. But you and I talked about this off the air. Mm-hmm. And the word is suicide. And for pain patients with intractable 24-7 pain that was under at least partial control, 
with the prescribing of opioid medication and is wildly out of control without those opioid medications, so many uh, at least start to think about the only way to get relief is to die. Mm -hmm. Correct? Yes, absolutely. I, I would be happy to talk about that. Go ahead. Well, I think I'd like to begin with what you said about suicide as an option, as really <laughs> the only option. You know, we as chronic pain patients, once we're refused our medications or they're reduced to the point to such a low dosage where they're so ineffective that we've been effectively denied, we have three options. The first is the one that you and I touched on before. We exist in a state of constant pain, knowing there will no longer be any hope of relief, however brief. The second option is turning to illegal substances, quote-unquote street drugs, heroin, etc. I personally will not. It's not an option for me because um, I've never used illegal drugs. We're n learning now they're, they're deadly with the fentanyl that's been introduced into a lot of this. And um, I've never used any illegal drugs, nor have I ever abused prescription drugs, which are basically illegal when they're not yours. Um, and the third option is suicide, because the only relief that you can get from the pain and the untreated chronic pain is, is to make it stop. It's the only thing in your power at your disposal to make it stop and 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 you have to realize that untreated chronic pain has very real physiological and measurable malignant effects on your body uh, one of which is it messes up your brain chemistry your hormones all those chemicals that help you feel good, deal with acute pain, things like that, they're completely out of balance, and your, your cortisol and adrenaline, the fight-or-flight hormones, chemicals, they're, they're so high, you, you, you cannot cope. You cannot cope. You, you sort of you sort of, you lose your mind because of the desperation. It's, it's all you can do. Now, I've, I've talked about the options, and I can talk about my personal experience with suicide, if you would like and if you have the time. If you're comfortable doing it? Well, first of all, I need you to realize that this is a very difficult, this is a painful and a scary subject for me. First of all, because I have been hospitalized. Um, I was hospitalized 12 years ago for this very thing, for suicidal ideations, suicidal thoughts. And <clears throat> please, like please only do the Carrie. Please only do this if if you're able to. No, I I want to because I people need to understand. Okay. If, if if I if I may, if you please, allow. no, no, go ahead, please. I I can only describe it as I felt very outside myself. I I did not. I knew this was not my, I was not in my normal state. And I had been feeling this way increasingly for about three weeks. And I knew something was very wrong. I drove to my doctor, the same doctor who has treated my pain for the last 15, now 16 years, who I trusted 
until a week ago with my life. Um, I drove to his office, and he saw me immediately because he could tell instantly something was wrong. And he gave me a letter, which I did not know, was for a psychiatric admit to the hospital. They ordered blood work, which confirmed his suspicions. And my hormones, this goes back to your brain chemistry and your hormones, they were completely out of whack. I was uh, extremely hypothyroid, which can cause depression, and I was in full-blown menopause. So I had two different uh, hormonal imbalances that were very severe and were causing this. They were causing me not to think clearly. And uh, once they treated these, they gave me hormone therapy, which contribute, continues, I mean, to this day, and an antidepressant, which I took for two weeks. I've never been on one since. I had never been on one before, but that's what I needed to get my brain chemistry corrected to where I was myself again. And suicide did not seem like something appealing to me, like a solution. Um, but I'm aware of exactly what I will feel like to progress to that point again. And the second reason this is so difficult for me to speak about is that I have lost dear friends to suicide. So I know firsthand the agony of that loss. And I would never want to force those feelings and that agony of wondering, was there anything I could have done, any way I could have saved this life? I would never wish that on my mom and dad, my family, my friends. It is, it is an agony that I just can't, unless you've, you've dealt with it, it's it's devastating. It's devastating. And, I, and, I'm, and it's a very real fear for me. And the thing is, I will know it when it happens because I have been there before. What is so terrible is that the medical people know this. The doctors know it. The Centers for Disease yes. Control know it. Our... Yes. Equivalencies in Canada know it. They know that you will experience what's happening to you, what, what's happened to you previously may happen to you again. They know it's happening to so many patients yeah. across millions of people uh, across North America eventually. If it's not happening now to them, it's happening to many now. But as more and more and more are cut off their only saving medication, the opioids, and that's what it is. It's medication. It's not taken for, for jollies. The, nope. the, when you take the, the opioids, as I understand it, they go to the pain receptors in the brain. They don't create this any kind of euphoric, boy, I love that feeling, I have to have it again. What they do is they make the pain manageable. But these it people really, know this, Carrie. The doctors know it. The yes. politicians know it. And they don't care. They're manipulating, no. they're manipulating drug addicts who are also dying. Mm -hmm. And they're most cynically manipulating patients for whom this is an illness they have no control over any more than anyone has control over getting cancer or heart disease. It happens. And we've also been hearing that in some medical centers, 
it's difficult for terminal cancer patients to now obtain the pain medications they require to not die in agony. This it is... happened to my brother. It happened to my brother a year ago. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Carrie, um, you were about to tell us about your brother. Well, my brother was diagnosed about a year and a half ago with um, stage 4 small cell bladder cancer. And um, he... He had the chemo and the radiation and uh, small cell, the cancer he has is a, what they call a floating cell cancer, so these cancer cells can, can appear elsewhere. So he had prophylactic brain radiation, and he did all this before his surgery, prior to his surgery. And he endured a surgery that was, four to six hours long to remove his bladder and some lymph nodes and also reconstruct a way for him to, um, he has a permanent urostomy now for him to urinate outside his body, basically. Um, while he was in the hospital after the surgery, he was in such pain, and I hate to say this, I, we had to call someone there and beg them to treat his pain. I can and only, he, I can, but Carrie, I can only apologize because we only have a minute left in our, in our time together today. Oh. But we'll talk again. Oh, I, can, just, just okay. fill, can you finish the, what happened, please, in that time? He just, he just, I had, the nurses were there. He was, you know, he was crying. The nurses were there. They could see he was in pain. But what they do is this infuriating thing now made more infuriating. It used to be infuriating that they would ask you on a scale of 1 to 10, what's your pain, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Now they ask you that. And then it's not followed up with an offer of anything to alleviate the pain where it used to be before. Now they just ask you, they chart it, and they move on. And you have to beg. They say, I'll check with your doctor. They give you any number of excuses, Mm -hmm. and they do not give you pain. And if the doctor, in his quote-unquote compassion, writes orders to them to administer pain medicine orally as needed, You, ha- it takes hours for you to get that from these women. Mm-hmm. I mean... I, I, know, I know of what you speak because when my wife was dying of cancer, she experienced the same thing. Uh, uh, let, let's talk again. I'd love to. Okay. Thank you so much I had, for joining I us had today. I had final comments that I wanted to say, and I'm so frustrated, so maybe you'll give me another opportunity. I will definitely do that. Definitely. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Thank you Carrie. for your attention to this. Thank you. Take good care. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.